G'day and welcome to the Mind Your Body Show. I am your host, Jacob Andre, and today I am talking to Nathan Kiley. So if you'd like to know more about physical preparedness for fast bowlers, stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jacob Andre, and for over a decade, I've trained everyone from children to elite athletes to move better, feel better, and perform better. While a thorough understanding of fitness and nutrition is vital, underpinning that is mindset. And I've come to discover just how important it is I've worked with literally thousands of people, and more often than not, it's the ones who win the mind game who succeed in the big game. So, how do they do it? This is the Mind Your Body Podcast. G'day and welcome to the episode prelude for Nathan Kiley. You are going to discover heaps in this episode. It was like going back to university for me and asking the strength and conditioning lecturer questions directly for over an hour. But before I get into it, let's talk about where you can access this episode. So of course, you can do so on our home base, which is our website, themindyourbodyshow.com, where you can view all of our full length episodes, as well as get access to all of the platforms that we share them on. So from there, you can go to YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Libsyn. So talking about YouTube, all of our episodes, our full-length episodes go up on YouTube. Just search for The Mind Your Body Show on YouTube. And if you liked something in the video that you saw there, then please like the video. And if you learned something from the episode, then please share it with your friends. And of course, comment and interact with us as you go through the episode, talking about the things that you liked and the things that you want to know more about. And let's keep the conversation going beyond the episode the full-length episode. Also on YouTube, I am sharing all of my biggest takeaways, which I'll talk about in a moment, for the things that I really took away from what Nathan talked about. Of course, we're also on Facebook and Instagram. You can follow us at The Mind Your Body Show, all one word on Facebook, and at The Mind Your Body Show with underscores in between each word on Instagram. And I'm absolutely loving Instagram at the moment. So if you are watching and tuning in on any platform and you're listening on your device, take a screenshot on your device and share it on your Instagram stories and tag myself at the Mind Your Body Show and Nathan at Nathan Kylie underscore Nathan and Kylie is spelled K-I-E-L-Y underscore and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. All right, let's get into what you're about to discover in this episode. So first of all, how Nathan minds his body. This is a question I like to ask all my guests straight up you are going to learn the common evolution of strength and conditioning coaches. And Nathan's story is very similar to many. How to run faster. The running drills Nathan uses to coach his athletes to run faster and why he uses those drills. This is an interesting point. Now I talk a lot about, you should always be asking why. As an athlete or as a student, you should be always asking your coach or your teacher why you are doing something. And You you should be asking so much that they are just getting sick of you asking why, 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 why. And if they can't answer you why, then you really should be looking for a new coach because there should be a purpose to absolutely everything that you do. And your coach should be able to tell you why they're doing every little thing. What priming is, what a French contrast is, how to improve your vertical jump, how to develop agility, what super maximal strength training is, when to use it and why. Examples of supramaximal training methods, how to develop eccentric strength, the importance of training for deceleration, examples of drills to train deceleration, how to train to handle the 9.5 times 
body weight going through the foot of fast bowlers in cricket, how to train for one-sided sports such as cricket, as well as tennis, hockey, and golf, the risk factors for hamstring injuries, how to condition your hamstrings for speed, the ideal distances you need to sprint to condition your hamstrings, the unique training methods to meet the needs of a sport whereby, whereby you're playing for five days, standing in the field for hours at a time and spontaneously need to sprint such as in cricket. And there was a little bit of tongue in cheek in Nathan's initial answer and it was quite funny actually. And then he goes into a, a serious answer and the benefits of isometric training, when to use it and why. Honestly, Nathan is one of the smartest guys that I've ever come across in strength and conditioning. And more importantly, his ability to be able to break down the concepts which he is talking about and explain it systematically, methodically, and at the appropriate level for everyone to understand is second to none. People can understand stuff, but the skill of being able to actually teach it is one which is quite difficult and Nathan does it. He takes concepts which are at like PhD level. He doesn't have his PhD yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's not far off that. He is highly educated and highly experienced, but his ability to be able to break down these concepts at the PhD level and explain them for athletes at the elite level to the high school level and right down to grassroots is phenomenal. And I, I really hope that he gets into lecturing at some point in his career because he's got a real knack for being able to break down difficult concepts and explain them very in very, very simple terms that anyone can understand. Okay, normally I have four or five takeaways from an episode. With Nathan's episode, I, I don't know how many is on this piece of paper, but there is a huge amount. And as a result we are going to end up with a whole bunch of mini takeaway videos that we're going to release. So the first one was how to run faster. His ability to break this down and explain how to run faster is, it's just so concise. Sprint drills to run faster, what sprint drills he uses, what priming is, how to improve your vertical jump, how to develop agility, how to train for deceleration, how to train to handle the 9.5 times body weight that I talked about earlier, going through the foot of fast bowlers in cricket. That was another major takeaway for how you train for that. How to train for one-sided sports like cricket. The risk factors for hamstring injuries and how to condition your hamstrings for speed. The unique training methods for test match cricket <laughs> that goes for five days, as I talked about before. He had a very funny answer to that, but that was one of my biggest takeaways. As well as, last of all, when to use isometric training and why. As I said, there is so much information in this episode. I wouldn't be surprised if you need to listen to this episode five times over. Continually pause, rewind, and I highly encourage you, like I do with every episode, get a pen and paper and take some notes. So without any further ado, let's get into it. G'day and welcome to the show. I have the, the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Nathan Kiley. Nathan, how are you? Welcome to the Mind Your Body Show. I'm very well. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's get started with how do you mind your body? And what I mean by that is how do you look after yourself? What are the things that you like to do most in order to make yourself feel good? Um, I suppose over the past few years, there's been a few different iterations of how I go about my own sort of training and 
um, my nutrition and things like that, like gone through different phases. Uh, I think a lot of strength and conditioning coaches go through the same sort of um, evolution where they're initially drawn into training and they probably look at like bodybuilding type training and nutrition information and they're probably reading bodybuilding.com or whatever to get a lot of their information and then they discover powerlifting <laughs> and they start <laughs> thinking oh I actually want to get strong so I kind of went through that phase as well where uh, focused on like what they call the big three lifts and um, you start sort of eating to get big <laughs> um, then after that you discover Olympic weightlifting <laughs> so I went through that phase for probably uh, a good two or three years um, if you're unfamiliar with the Olympic lifts they're what you see in the Olympics so bit more complicated technique-based movements and uh, big expressions of explosive power. And um, that's a really interesting phase to go through for a coach because you learn a lot about, uh, a lot about movement and, and coaching. And um, that's a, a, an interesting and engaging way to train as well. And after that, I, um, I sort of discovered uh, sprinting and track and field and athletics. And um, at the moment, um, I kind of try and blend all of those phases back together. Now I've kind of gone full circle and realized that um, it's probably best to sort of take bits and pieces from everything and put them together. So do a bit, bit of weights, I do a bit of sprinting. I do a bit of uh, longer aerobic stuff and I kind of try and just mix everything together and just try and eat a sort of healthy balanced diet and um, have some downtime as well. And, um, yeah, try and bring everything together and be as holistic as I can, I suppose, in a nutshell. That's awesome. There's so many ways I want to head off on this because there's so much I want to ask you. Um, but before I do, can I, do you mind me asking how old you are and how long it took you to get to this point where you're kind of blending all of it? Yeah, so at the moment I'm uh, 28 years of age and um, I suppose that journey that I've just described there is maybe 10 years in the making and uh, I kind of got into lifting weights and strength training when I was sort of just finishing high school. Um, so probably 17, 18 years of age and went through those initial phases where it's all about trying to look good naked or whatever. <laughs> uh, as I'm sure a lot of people get drawn into, into, uh, into health and fitness for, for the reason of um, wanting to look good, I guess. Um, and in the back of my mind, I, I was always really passionate about sport. Um, I played rugby and cricket at school and uh, I actually quite quickly realized that just training for looks wasn't really something that I was particularly passionate about. And um, I started to uh, think about how can I use training to help me be a better athlete and a better sports person. Um, and I continued to play cricket until I was probably 24 years of age. Um, and throughout that time, I really directed a lot of those training methods and, um, and that training journey towards trying to be as good at sport as I possibly could. Um, quickly realized that my talents were uh, outstripped by my ambitions as an athlete. So I gave up on, on the dream of becoming a professional sports person pretty quickly, but um, becoming a strength and conditioning coach has allowed me to uh, basically stay engaged in, in cricket. And, and that's where I work at the moment and um, really honored and privileged to be in a position where I get to continue um, sort of the journey of, 
of professional sport, not, not as an athlete, but um, being around the athletes who do perform at a high level and being able to be a part of that journey with them. So um, yeah, probably 10 years in the making of going through those processes and ending up in this sort of holistic training space now myself. Um, and a lot of that sort of feeds into how we try and train our athletes as well in terms of um, trying to give them a, a holistic, well-rounded program that makes them pretty good at everything really because that's what you need to be able to perform uh, team and field sports so what there's I guess once again there's so many ways I want to head off in in this episode but what has been the major things that have made you who you are today um yeah what a great question um I think like a lot of people, you, your pivotal years are when you're going through adolescence and your youth and you um, have a lot of different interactions with different people and there's always um, like a school teacher or, or a close friend of yours who gets you engaged in different activities or different things that you develop passions in. Um, for me, I had some really close friends who were passionate about sports and, um, and we bonded over those things and um, those were pretty formative in my development. Um, then I guess finishing school, moving from, from a small country town to the city and probably not really having a lot of direction for quite a few years. I kind of think of with different things and work different part-time jobs and whatnot and did my fair share of time on the end of a, of a, um, of a shovel and all that sort of stuff. And um, I think a lot of that kind of gives you some real perspective on um, what life has to offer. And obviously you go and travel and things like that as well. And you see the, see the world. And um, I suppose I kind of just stumbled upon strength and conditioning as um, something that I probably had never even considered as something that you could do as a job. Um, and basically just in that journey of trying to figure out how I could be the best athlete I could be, I d discovered this thing that people get to do for a living and, um, Pretty much as soon as I realized that that was something um, you could do for a real job, I was, I was hooked. And um, I suppose it was probably around the age of 22 that I went to university to study sport and exercise science. And I've not looked back since then. I've kind of just been fully engulfed in it ever, ever since. And you've got an honours in strength and conditioning as well as you're a level two strength and conditioning coach with Australian um, Strength and Conditioning Association, ASCA. Um, what was what was that like so did you go straight through and do your honors immediately after doing your undergraduate and what was the study like for you um yeah so like I said I didn't go straight to uni out of school um took a while to figure it out but eventually when I realized that I could get into strength and conditioning I quickly sort of wanted to figure out okay well what are the means to the ends and I knew straight away like I want to work in professional sport I want to be a strength and conditioning coach in cricket. Basically, that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I kind of mapped out a little bit of a plan of, okay, well, what are the steps that I need to do to achieve those goals? And um, the first was that I needed to get an undergraduate in a, a sports science related degree. So I did my undergrad at uh, the University of Technology in Sydney. And I was a three-year undergrad. Um, and as an awesome place to learn because there's some really... Um, really highly skilled, high level practitioners who are also researchers who are teaching those courses there. Um, and one of the awesome things that happened during that time was um, one of the, one of the uh, subject coordinators there was doing some research with Cricket New South Wales. And they were just looking for research assistants. 
Um, and I think this was probably in my final year of my undergrad. And I put my hand up and I said, I'd be really excited to be involved. And I just helped out with a little bit of testing one day. Um, and I think the connection there with my uh, subject coordinator um, sort of established an interest in, um, in the higher level sports science research areas, uh, showed that I was really interested in cricket in particular as a sport. Um, and then when it got to the end of the year, um, my subject coordinator actually approached me and said, I've got an opening for someone to do an honours research project, um, looking at performance and biomechanics with cricket, would you be interested? And um, it wasn't initially part of my plans to do that, um, but I jumped at the opportunity. I thought, well, these the stars are aligning here. So I... Um, I was really excited and I got struck, stuck straight into it. And, and uh, my honours project was a year-long research project where, like I mentioned, we looked at um, some performance aspects and some biomechanical aspects related to performance in fast bowlers, um, which is where my link with Cricket New South Wales uh, originated. Um, and on the back of that, um, you, you develop your networks and um, then they were looking for someone to come and fill a role as a, as a pathway or academy strength and conditioning coach. Um, and all the while, while doing this, I'd been working, uh, I'd spent two or three years working in a, a Sydney GPS high school uh, with their rugby program and had done a season of um, under 20s rugby league with the Sydney Roosters. So I had that strength and conditioning practical experience. I had that, um, that sort of understanding of the sport of cricket through my research and uh, having been an athlete in that sport myself. And then that connection through, um, through UTS and my honours research project sort of helped bring it all together. And um, I was luckily enough to be um, the successful candidate in that um, job application process. And um, I think things have just sort of snowballed from there. Um, I'm currently in a, in a position now where um, I sort of fill sorts of, all sorts of different boots at Cricket New South Wales at different times of the year. There's um, not been a program I don't think that I've not worked with in the last uh, 12 months, especially with COVID and the things that have been going on. It's been an interesting year. Um, but I, my main sort of role is still heavily involved with pathway athletes and to a lesser extent in a support role for the New South Wales Blues. So we've got another lead S&C, Ross Herridge, who directs and runs that program. And I, uh, I jump in wherever I can to fill gaps and help out and uh, lighten his load as much as possible as well. So what do you specifically do at Cricket New South Wales as a strength and interesting coach? Like what is the, if you were to say, this is the one thing I do most often, or what is the one thing that most athletes ask me for advice about, what is that? Um, well, there's the, the real answer is probably more vibe management, which is picking the right playlist uh, during warm-ups <laughs> and uh, during gym sessions. But what I'd like to think that the answer is, is um, basically creating and facilitating an environment where uh, athletes feel comfortable to come and ask questions, um, being an open book to help people ask the right questions um, and nudging people in the right direction. So we, we don't run like a dictatorship with our athletes or anything and, uh, and tell them that this is the only way to do things. It's definitely a collaborative process where we work with athletes to understand um, what, what sort of things they feel are limiting factors in their performance. And then we've also got our own expert opinion on, um, on what we think that the athletes need. And then there's a, a third layer, which is 
um, that we have some obligations around different things that our athletes are required to do um, from a, a whole systems approach. Uh, and we try and meet in the middle as best we can and, and uh, get the right outcomes for athletes long-term. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the main things that we're trying to do is give our athletes um, basic programming that is executed at a really high level. So I'm really big on talking about like do simple better or following kiss, the KISS principle, keeping it simple, stupid, that sort of stuff. So we don't try and overcomplicate our programs. Um, we try and make sure that our athletes are doing some strength training regularly. So once or twice a week in season and uh, three to four times in the preseason, we'll try and try and do that. We're trying to make sure that our athletes are sprinting regularly. It's a really important part of injury prevention as well as performance is that athletes are exposed to high-speed running at regular intervals. Uh, and then obviously the conditioning element when we're playing a sport that uh, requires athletes to be on their feet for seven, eight hours a day, um, day after day. And on top of that, it's interspersed with lots of short, high intensity efforts. Um, it's really important that athletes have a solid aerobic base and fitness level so that they can recover um, and continue to perform those high outputs hour after hour. Um, so yeah, it's, there's, there's no one thing. Um, but that's the beauty of it is it's um, it's a bit of a beast at times and it, it can be, it can be difficult to figure out exactly what each athlete needs, but um, yeah, right athlete, right stimulus, right time in the right dose. Um, and, and that's going to be different for every single individual that we work with. So not one size fits all by any means at all. And so how big is the team at Cricket New South Wales in terms of the strength and conditioning team? Uh, yeah. So we're, um, our, our broader sports science and sports medicine team uh, is an awesome team to work with. We've got uh, probably, what have we got? I think we've got about 10 full-time practitioners. Um, and then we've got other consultants who come in at different times of the year. So um, we've got some, uh, some really experienced individuals who come in for like the big bash and things like that, that'll work with the franchises. Um, the strength and conditioning group, we've got, three and a quarter staff members. So our, our head of sports science and sports medicine, Tom Redden, um, he's really experienced strength and conditioning coach. So he can come in and help us on the tools at times as well. And then there's my, myself, Ross Herridge is the lead uh, strength and conditioning or physical performance coordinator. And then Sean Hardy leads the uh, New South Wales breakers program and works heavily with the, the female pathway. Um, so that's the female side of the, of the setup. Um, and, and previously my role has been more pathways across both um, male and female and uh, continue to jump in and out of both sides of the programs at different times. Um, but at the moment I've probably worked a bit more on the, on the men's side of stuff in the last 12 months. So I came across you on Instagram because a friend of mine who I used to do athletics with as a teenager, and I fell into athletics actually through surf lifesaving, which is funny enough being from Darwin. Um, I was a beach printer and beach blagger. And so that's how I got into athletics and met a mate of mine. And he is now an F45 trainer and a fiery. And he said, dude, you've got to check out this guy on Instagram. The stuff that he's posting is so interesting. And when I was writing some notes for this episode of what I wanted to ask, the list just kept going longer and longer. And I was thinking this is going to become for a four hour episode and it's going to become like a, a PhD. So what I decided is I'm going to go through your Instagram posts from, from, that, from what you've just recently posted and go back and ask questions around that. But yeah, what cool. I want to start with is the running stuff. 
because that's the, I absolutely love running. It's my favorite activity to do. And when I watch your Instagram posts, so your Instagram, by the way, I'll just let you um, just quickly plug it. Uh, I think it's just Nathan Kylie with an underscore afterwards. So pretty simple. There you go. <laughs> so and I highly recommend checking that. It will definitely be linked up in the show notes. But um, what I really liked is all the Franz Bosch stuff. So I was lucky enough to meet him. He came, he came to the AIS, I never met him at the AIS, but he came to the AIS, did a presentation. And I was working at the Northern Church Institute of Sport. One of the guys that was a manager there went down, met him, saw him and was like, this guy's phenomenal. We need to get this guy back. And they flew him back to Darwin and did a workshop. And so I met him at that and was completely hooked on all of the mechanics that he was talking about. So what can you tell someone that comes to you and says, I want to get faster. Um, what to unpack. <laughs> First and most important thing is that you need to actually sprint and you need to sprint regularly and you need to do it with full and complete recovery. Um, and I think that's the thing that a lot of people get wrong. Um, they turn sprint sessions into conditioning sessions. So at the, at the simplest level and the simplest layer, um, yeah, do as many reps as you can at 100% intensity as possible. Um, and a lot of people will conflate intensity with effort and volume. But intensity is, if you think about your personal best over whatever given distance, you need to be within five, at most 10% of that every single rep. If your speeds are, are falling away throughout the course of a workout, you clearly have insufficient recovery um, and, and that means that you're no longer training those, um, those really high output qualities that are really important for developing speed. Um, there is a time and a place for those other types of sessions, but you are unlikely and it is less effective uh, if your goal is to get faster to, um, to do it under duress and fatigue. Um, those are probably the, the simplest and most important messages I would give. Um, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Um, so I'm sure what, we'll because, elaborate on other elements further. Yeah, for sure. Because I know looking through your Instagram stuff, you're going to be able to talk at this level. And I want to be able to start at that level and come down for, you know, the basic person, like high school, because I've gone back into PE teaching, which I absolutely love. And I end up doing a lot of coaching with high school athletes. And I, so I've got them in mind. So I'm, we'll keep this specific to cricketers particularly fast bowlers but of course all this stuff is going to be able to be extrapolated across uh, all running sports um, so when what I really like is what you've said that you have to do over 90 percent with a full recovery and you do as many of them as possible with your drills tell me about the drills that you do um, it's been probably an evolution of how I've drilled athletes and um, I have to give a lot of credit to uh, Roger Fabry as well, who's uh, um, probably Australia's most famous sprint coach, especially in the, uh, the Eastern States. Uh, he's very well known for working with um, the Jared Haynes, Sonny Bill Williams, David Warners of the world and really helping them add, um, add to their game and make them more dynamic athletes. And I spent uh, probably at least 12 to 18 months working under Roger and he really helped uh, in my formative years learn and understand about where and how drills can be used. Um, so 
I copy and pasted everything that he did for the first couple of years. But since then, I've uh, experimented with other different things and probably evolved um, into, into my own sort of way of doing stuff. And at the moment, and I'm sure this will change over the next five to 10 years as well, um, I try and keep my drilling very simple. I try and spend as little time on it as possible. Uh, and I try and make sure that each element of the drilling that we do is targeting a specific quality or element of the running gate and running cycle. So uh, I break it down into ankle stiffness, um, which is extremely important. And a lot of athletes um, who have a low training age and have not really dug deep into uh, athletic performance would probably not be particularly familiar with what ankle stiffness is. But I like to think of it as the suspension in a sports car. If you've got soft suspension that uh, rides all the bumps out as you go over them, that's all well and good for comfort. But what it doesn't do is give you that sharp reactivity. The, if you jab the steering wheel one way a little bit, you get that sharp reaction back out of it. Um, your ankle functions in the same way as the suspension. And you want a stiff, sharp, reactive ankle that can give you back everything that you put down into the ground. Um, and one of the ways that you can train that is through plyometrics. Um, and you can just do them, integrate them into your strength sessions. And another way that you can do that is with targeted and specific uh, running based drills. Um, so recently I've become really big fan of dribbling progressions um, or ankling progressions, dribbling, ankling, both of those terms get used quite a lot. Um, I'm a big fan of basic pogos. I also just like jump rope as well uh, as a general sort of way of developing ankle stiffness. But it's really important that when you're doing these exercises, that you are actually consciously making sure that you are retaining rigidity through your ankle and you're trying to, um, well, one of the things I like to think about is the joint that deforms the least is probably the joint that's going to win the most. So if your ankle uh, bends and then unbends a lot during a plyometric action, uh, basically you're dissipating and losing all of that elastic energy um, which your tendons are wired to, to give to you if you keep them stiff and rigid. So like I said, really important that you focus on um, actively trying to maintain a rigid stiff ankle when you're doing those sorts of exercises. So that's probably the first running drill I'm going to, or the first category of running drills I'm going to implement in a, in a running session. Probably just going to be some basic dribbling um, starting with small cycles and building up over 30 meters is a typical way that I would do that. And we'd probably just do two reps of that. The next thing I'm going to focus on um, really falls back into that Franz Boschi type stuff. And that's where we start to look at um, what he'll call a hip lock position. Um, and if you're familiar with some basic running drills, I think a lot of athletes uh, have seen like an A skip in some way, shape or form. It's a pretty common exercise that athletes will do in warmups. Um, I've got a very specific way that I coach and like athletes to perform A skips or even just basic exchanges from one A position to the other. So that A position sort of your um, knee up at, uh, at a right angle, uh, knee up and toe up together. And a good strong hip lock is going to involve um, your swing side being elevated uh, with through the hips. So you actually need to use your obliques while you're doing that as well. Um, so the next drills that I'm going to do are going to fall into that sort of category where we're targeting hip lock. 
Um, and I've got a few different variations that I like to use for that. And part of the use of different variations is to try and engage athletes in the learning process by adding variety that challenges them with different sort of coordinative tasks. Can they get into and out of those specific positions um, under different conditions and challenge them in different ways. Um, and that sort of falls back on some of the Bosch stuff where they talk about what they call robust running. And that's um, how well an athlete can find these positions under different constraints. Um, are you on a heavy track? Can you get into good positions? Um, can you get into and out of good positions through contact and through collisions if you're playing a collision or contact-based sport? Um, so that's a, an important element of why we use slight different variations. So we might just do a single exchange where you're starting in that A position, jumping, switching and sticking the landing. We might progress to doing three of those quickly, then into a skip and then just into like a, a high knee or an A run where we're just sort of getting in and out of those positions nice and quickly. Um, once I've focused on that hip lock position, the last thing I'm going to do is focus on like a clawing or pullback action and really trying to target the posterior chain, which is all those muscles uh, on the backside of the body, the, the go muscles versus the show muscles, as I'm sure you're <laughs> familiar with that, Jack. Um, so I'm a massive fan of straight leg running, straight leg bounding. Some people call them like prime times or whatever. I don't really get caught up in the semantics of what you want to call the exercise, but straight leg running and straight leg um, bounding type variations are a really good way of um, getting athletes to use and uh, target their posterior chain. So their glutes and hamstrings in particular. Um, and in a similar vein to like the dribbles that I spoke about previously from a practical perspective, normally I'll just get athletes to start with small strides of straight leg running and just build up uh, to big, long, powerful straight leg bounds over about 30 meters. And often it's only two reps of that. Um, and basically what I'm trying to do is use these exercises just to warm up those kind of areas that are likely to get injured in an athlete as well, and also uh, prime them neurologically to get into and out of these positions. And um, what we can do is when we activate certain muscles in certain ways, we basically tell that muscle that this is a pattern that you, you like and you should do more of. So then when we go and sprint, our body is more likely to get into and out of these positions in the way that we want them to. Um, and that's probably the purpose of drilling in my mind at the moment. Uh, don't spend too much time on it, but I'm quite specific in the way I want it done. Um, and in the initial phases, when I'm working with a new athlete or a new group, I'll spend more time on these drills and, uh, and really heavily coach the drills and get the athletes to understand how, why, um, and what I want them to do so that throughout the, the season or throughout the year, we can, um, we can just jump in and out of them uh, nice and efficiently as well. And so when you say priming, what specifically do you mean? Yeah, so um, priming is basically there's, there's a, uh, a phenomenon that's called neuromuscular potentiation um, where there's quite a few processes that go on. But um, the long story short is if you activate a muscle um, and um, – get it warmed up, get it firing, get the brain sending strong signals to it, get the, uh, the enzymes um, working in the working muscles, get blood flow to the muscles. Um, you basically increase the potential for that muscle to produce force later. So a practical example of that could be something like if our outcome goal is to jump higher, we might get an athlete to do a similar sort of movement, but overload it with a, um, 
with a conditioning exercise like a trap bar deadlift, for example. So you could do some heavy trap bar deadlifts. And then if you were to wait two to three minutes, um, there's different sort of research talking about the optimal window for a priming effect. You can then go and do a vertical jump and actually perform better than what you would have done without the priming exercise previously. It's slightly counterintuitive to a lot of people initially when they first hear about priming, they think, oh, well, I'm fatiguing myself with something and that's going to make me worse in an activity. But if you get the volume right, and the volume being the amount of work that you do, not necessarily the intensity, we want intensity to be high in a, in a conditioning or priming exercise. If you get the volume right, you get this really awesome potentiation effect. Um, that potentiation effect can be used in multiple different ways. So one of the ways we use it practically in training is um, by integrating it into, um, I've had a mind blank on the word that I was looking for, um, complex training, sorry. Uh, so complex training is when we pair exercises together, just like we've spoken about there. And we just integrate that into our strength and power training program. So we might be doing four sets of four on a trap bar deadlift followed by an alternating. You do one set of your trap bar deadlift and alternating and followed by some variation of a jump. So we might do trap bar deadlift, four box jumps, back to our trap bar deadlift, four box jumps. And we can work between those two. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, other variations of this could be something like a French contrast. Um, I recommend looking up French contrast if you're interest, interested in this stuff where there's uh, a really heavy strength exercise followed by an explosive jumping exercise and then a, a slightly more ballistic strength training exercise, sometimes paired with an overspeed jump exercise. So you could be accelerating yourself in a jump by using bands that are hung over the top of a squat rack, for instance. And the theory behind that is that you're now targeting all sorts of different elements across the force velocity curve. Um, so there's an inverse relationship between how heavy something is and how fast you can move. Um, some athletes are going to be more inclined to operate at a higher level at one end of that curve compared to the other. Um, and surfing the curve, so to speak, allows us to make sure that we're targeting all elements so that our athletes are going to become more well-rounded. The other way that we can use potentiation uh, and priming is through what we call a priming session. So um, by trying to do a, sh well, not by trying to, if, if you use a, a short, sharp strength power training session that lasts 30 minutes, for instance, and you do that sort of six to 10 hours before your sports performance. So going and playing a game of, of whatever your competition exercise is. So might be going and playing cricket on the weekend or <clears throat> if you're a track and field athlete before your track meet, um, you get this delayed potentiation effect that lasts um, from six to some, some research papers cite like 36 hours later. Um, so what you're actually doing is, and I, I think some athletes have probably experienced this too, where they have a day off before they go to compete and they actually kind of feel a little bit sluggish on game day. Um, I've played around with this for the last maybe two years and I love doing it. I show up to game day, I feel awake, I feel alive. Um, when I'm playing cricket, the first ball comes out and I'm like, okay, yeah, like I can do this effortlessly. And it's because I've woken everything up. Like you've, you've gone and activated all those working muscles. You've, um, you've got your brain sending those strong signals. You've got blood flow to the muscles going. And again, volume is important. We don't want to overdo it in this session, um, but it can be quite counterintuitive for a lot of athletes initially when they, when they hear this stuff. Um, but I would highly recommend athletes play around with it because um, 
like I, it's it's worth five percent in my mind. Don't cite me on that, but it it really uh, it really does open up uh, opportunities for you to go and play easy. Um, if if you've ever experienced that sluggish sensation before games. Yeah, so I'm just going to sidestep here for a second, and there is pun intended if you know when you hear what I'm coming back to. Um, but one of the questions I get seemingly more and more right now is how do I improve my vertical jump? So seeing as we're kind of on that um, sort of line at the moment, how what would you say to that question? Well, the first thing that most people don't think of is practice vertical jumping. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, the deliberate practice of the, the exercise or the task is really important. Um, I'm not an expert on vertical jump training. <clears throat> I've worked a little bit with basketball, but uh, it's, it's not my forte. But it's not complicated stuff. It's, it's going to be your traditional strength and power training. It's going to be your ballistic lifts and Olympic weightlifting variations. It's going to be your plyometric progressions, and it's going to be practicing the task. Um, the volumes, intensities are all going to be specific to individual athletes. But um, at, in the simplest form, you should be doing heavy lower body strength training one to two times per week. You should be doing ballistic and Olympic weightlifting variations one to two times per week, probably on the same day as your strength training. You should be doing your jumps and plyometrics in the gym. So your specific sort of elements um, where you're hitting different variations and different aspects of, of, um, of the jumping and plyometric action. So um, like some of my go-tos at the moment are taking away counter movements, which is probably sort of like a Boschy type um, concept, the Franz Bosch concept. Uh, he talks a lot about muscle slack. So I'm a big fan of like seated box jumps without any arm swing and things like that. And then also your short ground contact stiffness type exercises. So your, your drop jumps and your pogos and things like that as well. Um, and then, when you go and talk about the task itself, then it comes back to, well, how do you, um, how do you implement that? And the best person to ask is probably going to be the sports coach. So if you're working with a basketball athlete, um, get the basketball coach to help you develop a drill for the, for the athlete. Like if we're trying to help them dunk or get rebounds, all right, let's actually work on that in practice or a volleyballer who needs to block and defend um, all right, let's do a drill that's aimed at working on that specific quality because the timing and coordination elements of those specific tasks are just as important as the physio physiological output of jumping. Yeah, such a great answer. Thank you so much and so in-depth. Um, so what I want to come back to then is the agility, um, hence the sidestep comment. Uh, how do you develop agility and how do you sort of um, progress it, I suppose, from that straight line speed stuff? Um, I'll tell you one way I don't do it, and that's with ladders. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of that sort of stuff. Um, and the reason that I'm not a big fan of that is I think a lot of people underestimate, and I kind of alluded this, to this before with the volleyball and basketball example, is the, the task-specific elements of agility, for instance. So a lot of athletes and coaches will forget how important it is to perceive and react uh, dynamically with um, what's going on around you. So agility um, is very context dependent. So agility as an attacker is actually a different skill <clears throat> to agility as a defender. Um, trying to avoid contact is not the same as trying to engage in it. And a lot of this comes back to how well you can perceive and react to an opponent. Um, 
So a lot of the athletes who are great um, at this sort of task are not necessarily the strongest athletes in the gym. They're not necessarily the fastest sprinters, but what they are is experts or CEOs or PhDs in reading what opposition players are doing and knowing what to do in response to that. And the best way to uh, get good at this is to practice it. Um, so one-on-one, two-on-one, two-on-two drills that, um, that an SNC or an athletic development coach can work on developing with the sports coach themselves, they're probably going to be the best way to train these elements. So when I worked in rugby league and rugby union, we would do a lot of um, one-on-one contest type drills where uh, you sort of have a one-on-one contest where uh, there are options for the attacker and the defender has to read and defend against it. It's a basic, simple matchup. And this is going to transfer really well to a game situation because essentially that's what the game is. Um, And when we design these drills, what we're trying to do is add density to that task. So how many opportunities does an athlete normally get to work on these in general training? Probably not as many as you'd like for them to be able to get good at the skill. So let's try and create a facilitative environment where the athlete's going to get rep after rep after rep with an appropriate recovery for them to start to learn how to read different players, um, start to pick up on pre-cues and then start to figure out themselves without me telling them, with them figuring out themselves, what is this, what is the movement solution to the problem that's being presented to me? Um, There are other physical elements that are involved and uh, eccentric strength and stiffness qualities are really important. So your eccentric strength is how well you can decelerate or lower load. And you can train that through um, the most effective ways through super maximal strength training, um, where you're using a load that is above your one rep maximum. Um, Sounds pretty dangerous and it can be. So (laughs) you need to make sure you're doing it in an appropriate way. Um, you often need specialized equipment to do super maximal strength training um, or another way that you can do super maximal strength training is through a, a two up one down approach so for example um, an easy way to think of that would be to do like a knee extension exercise use both legs to lift the weight up and use a very heavy weight for both legs remove one leg from underneath the, um, the machine and then slowly and under control lower the load with that other single leg. So that would be a super maximal training method. The other way you can work on eccentric strength is through an accentuated eccentric tempo um, with a submaximal load. And this is not as effective as a super maximal load, but it's still an effective way to target eccentric strength. So that would be something like, I want you to do a squat um, with... of your one rep maximum and lower it over a five second period um, before then lifting it explosively like you would normally. And then the other way that you can, um, you can work on these eccentric qualities is um, through variations of landing exercises um, and you can do super maximal landings as well. So that would be something like jumping off a box from a height that's actually higher than you could jump. Um, which again is a very, very high intensity training method. Um, I would only recommend doing this with athletes who have a really solid foundation and know how to land and have good technique. And I would start off with very low volumes in this exercise as well. And it's also not something that I would do all year round. It would be something I would 
drip feed in and out at different times. Um, but those are the elements that are going to support your ability to change direction um, from a physical standpoint, but do not underestimate the importance of the task specific elements of um, reacting to a specific stimulus. And through that, you're starting to touch on what I wanted to get to next, which is deceleration. And a concept I came across is you wouldn't jump in a Ferrari and head down the Stuart Highway between Darwin and Adelaide at 300 kilometers an hour if the Ferrari didn't have brakes. So most what, people wouldn't. <laughs> most people wouldn't, I would hope. So what would, what, but so many athletes are only focused and worried about acceleration and not deceleration. And deceleration is such a huge part of injury prevention, but also of athletic performance. Yeah, I mean, um, in the sport I work in, it's something that we target quite a lot. Um, when we work with our batters, a huge element, like a, a big KPI for them from a physical perspective is how well they can run between the wickets. And every turn that they take is initiated with a deceleration phase. Um, so we try and challenge our athletes to practice getting up to and then back down from speed uh, in an efficient and effective way to control and own their positions when they do that sort of thing. So we do basic drills like, all right, over some progressions, we might start off with um, some basic general dynamic warm-up stuff. And then we'll do, all right, I want you to do three reps of a five meter acceleration and then stop on the line, five meter acceleration, stop on the line. And I want you to sort of work through the gears, do your first one easy then go a little bit harder. And then I want on that third and final one, I want you to try and go as fast as you can before stopping as quickly as you you can um, once an athlete shows me that they can do that well all right let's challenge you a little bit more by working over 10 meters now so you've got an opportunity to get up to a higher velocity and then you're going to be forced to bring yourself back down even harder and faster um, and we just progress that out all the way out to sort of 20 30 meters we're also focused on what sort of technique the athlete is using when they're decelerating and when they finish decelerating, are they in control and ownership of the position that they've ended up in? So it's all well and good for an athlete to stop on the line and then lose balance and fall over. I want an athlete who can stop on the line and stay there. So I'll often get an athlete to stop, stick the landing, show me a good strong athletic base position to finish in. And I'll walk along the line and I'll nudge them around and I'll say, don't let me push you over. Don't lose your balance. Stay in control of the position you're in. Um, then we'll start to progress onto variations of changing direction um, and building out those other elements. Um, but as I said, you can also support those qualities with your eccentric strength training, your supermaximal, submaximal, uh, and supermaximal jumps as well, where you can target those eccentric qualities. So those sprints, are you saying that they're five meter sprints and then what distance are you getting them to stop in? Zero? Sorry, yeah. Or so the, fir the, the first, uh, the five meter example would be, you've, the whole rep is five meters. So it's probably three meters worth of acceleration and two to get to a stop and 10 might be seven meters of acceleration and try and stop in three. But the, the challenge for the athlete is as we work through the gears and we're always asking them to start slow and build their intensities up, um, which is just sort of basic principle of how we go about doing things, we'll challenge the athlete to try and sprint faster and stop later as we work through, through those reps. Um, so it's not super prescriptive in terms of, um, you've got to sprint for nine and stop in one. Yeah. And so that's with running, uh, with uh, batting and running through the wickets. But what about bowlers who I come across on your Instagram page that they've got 9.5 times their body weight and correct me, please, if I'm wrong, going through that planted foot when they bowl. 
they so they've got a lot of pressure. How do we? How do you train that? And how do you train? You know, just to be able to absorb that amount of pressure. Yeah, that's a no a whole other kettle of fish. <laughs> um, it does become a slightly different case there because now you're talking about a repetitive skill, um, a cyclical action that gets repeated over and over and over again. Um, so part of that is that the athletes are going to adapt and develop an ability to tolerate those loads simply by practicing the skill. Um, but we can support that with elements of our strength training program. Um, but it can be, and there's different opinions on how to do this best. Some would argue that we shouldn't try and replicate that because they're already getting a huge volume of that stimulus just by doing their skill. Others would argue that you should try and overload it to create a, a reserve or extra capacity and redundancy in the system. Um, some coaches will use variations of maximal isometric pushes uh, in sport-specific positions to try and develop those qualities. Um, I've played around with those sorts of things. I think there's probably utility and value in doing that. Um, some of my athletes will use those sorts of exercises at different times. I'm a big fan of trying to fill the gaps at different times of the year. So uh, when our athletes aren't bowling a lot, I think there's more of a place for that sort of stuff to start preparing them for it when it comes later. Um, but I also think that if an athlete's doing a lot of bowling, the last thing they need is for me to be like, all right, you need to get in that same position you've already done 200 times this week and push as hard as you can. Uh, so there's a balancing act. There's a time and a place for everything. Um, but like I said, because it's a cyclical and repeated action, um, they do get a lot of stimulus in that specific position. Um, so GPP, general strength training, general physical conditioning uh, is more what I would lean towards for an athlete like that, um, just to try and iron out any imbalances and sort of restore them back to as close to normal as we can. And so how do you go about that with um, a skill like bowling, similar to tennis, where it's, and hockey, where you're using one side of the body more? <clears throat> yeah, so... Um, yeah, there's, there is a bandwidth for what is functional from an asymmetry perspective. And some of the asymmetries that our athletes have are actually um, associated with performance. They've developed these asymmetries to make them better at the sport. So we don't want to undo that. Um, what we do want to do is restore range of motion. Um, and we want our athletes to be functional and balanced in general physical activities. So if my athlete, for instance, was unable to dumbbell bench press the same amount of weight on both arms, I would see that as a problem. But I'm not asking them to bowl six balls left-handed for every six they bowl right-handed. Um, we understand and appreciate that it is a unilateral sport and being asymmetrical is normal. Everyone is asymmetrical. Your heart is more on the left. Your organs aren't balanced out perfectly. Um, most people are right-handed. It just is the way it is. Most people actually are stronger on their left leg because that's the leg they use to support and balance themselves when they do skill-related activities with their right foot. Um, and, and that's just how we've evolved. Um, so it's okay for things not to be perfectly symmetrical, but I am very conscious of restoring range of motion in the hips and thoracic spine, especially, 
those are areas that can get tight and lose their ability to get into and out of ranges of motion. So we'll do specific exercises and, and drills to restore range of motion, especially after like a big bowling day, for instance, athletes will often be stiff and tight. So we'll try and open and loosen them back up. And then we do do a lot of unilateral strength training in our GPP or general physical preparation uh, so that athletes can target each limb individually with an eye on and a, and, and a goal of those being um, symmetrical as a general rule of thumb. Um, a lot of my athletes, when they come into like an academy or pathway set up for the first time, will have big asymmetries. Um, and sort of like a little trick that I've, generally advise athletes to do is um, for instance, if your left arm is weaker, I'll say, all right, if, if you're doing this particular single arm exercise, I want you to always do your left arm first for me. And whatever load you can do with your left arm, that's all you're allowed to use with your right arm. Um, and that way our athlete can start to work on ironing those balances out a bit more quickly, bring up their strength in the weaker side. And then once they get things back to symmetry and back to level, um, then you can just go for your life from there. So the hamstring is a muscle group which is quite oftenly um, injured. What are the risk factors for hamstring injuries? And I can help help you with this and list them if you would like to, because you posted this recently on Instagram. Um, and you go through short, shortened fascicle length, lack of eccentric strength, overstriding, and no sprinting in training. So can you talk more about those four factors? Yep. So... Um... Fascicle length is basically, if you think about um, a, a piece of muscle tissue, um, if that muscle tissue is short and weak, it's, uh, it's got less capacity to operate well at um, an end range of motion. Now, hamstring strains in sprinting normally happen at, during the late swing phase, which is when the muscle is, uh, is elongated and on stretch. So if your muscles don't have the ability to get into that position, and are weak in that position, uh, that's a huge problem. So what we can do is use eccentric training, which is associated with the next risk factor. Um, you can also use sprint training as well, funnily enough. You can use different types of training to actually mitigate this. So we can actually change the length of our fascicles through training. Um, so heavy, super maximal eccentric training and sprint training over time will actually lengthen our muscle fascicles um, and improve their ability to operate at those long muscle lengths. Um, so short and weak, bad, long and strong, um, really good. The second one was eccentric strength. Uh, like we said, late swing phase is when these muscle strains normally occur. And the action that is occurring is controversial. It's either isometric in nature or eccentric in nature in the, in the, in the muscles. Um, but what causes a strain is an eccentric action. There's no de debating that. Um, when our muscle acts eccentrically and is not strong enough to resist that eccentric action, that's when muscle fibers are going to tear. So we need muscles to be robust and strong so that they can handle eccentric forces and hopefully they're not actually exposed to them. Um, eccentric muscle actions are the strongest muscle actions that our muscles can produce. Uh, like I mentioned before, eccentric actions are lowering a weight or um, decelerating a joint. Um, so we can handle much higher loads under eccentric load than we can if we're trying to lift something up. So you've got some redundancy in the system there, but as with all tissues, 
there's eventually a, a cutoff point where it can no longer handle the load. Um, the third element I spoke about was overstriding. So that's uh, a technical component of your sprinting action, your running gait, uh, and it just comes back to your running mechanics. So like we said, late swing phase. Um, so that's when you're sort of reaching out in front of yourself with your foot. Um, that is when most muscle strains occur, not all, um, in the hamstrings. And an overstriding action is basically you doing too much and uh, late swing over and over and over again. So if you think about, well, this is the time when the injury occurs and you are exacerbating that element of your running gait over and over and over again, naturally you're going to be at an increased risk of injury. So um, we can change that though through technical interventions, working on different drills and techniques to help the athlete run more efficiently uh, and organize their running gait in, in, a, in a better way. I'm a big fan of using exercises like mini hurdle wicket runs. I think that's a really good exercise, especially if it's coached properly. And that's an important part. You need to make sure you get the spacings of the hurdles correct. Uh, I think it's a great exercise for teaching athletes how to orientate and strike the ground properly. Um, but you can also do it through those other drills that I spoke about before. Like if, if you are getting your athlete to do straight leg bounding, for example, and you're coaching them to four foot strike, not heel strike, if you get them to four foot strike, then naturally they're not going to be overstriding. A heel striking action uh, is, a, is a, a heavy braking force and it's um, indicative of an overstride. So making sure you've got a four foot strike on, on a straight leg bound using your mini hurdle wickets and things like that are a great way to change that overstriding action. And then finally, not sprinting and training. Um, sprinting is the vaccine. Sometimes we get um, an adverse side effect, yes. Sprinting is the cause of hamstring strains a lot of the time. But um, the last thing you want is that the only time you sprint is once every six weeks in a game and you're not being exposed to it regularly in training to prepare and condition your muscle tissues to be able to handle those stresses. And we know from research that you are at a higher risk of hamstring muscle strain uh, if you do not sprint regularly. And we think the best available evidence is to sprint at least once every seven to 10 days. Um, so as a general rule, I try and get athletes to hit top speed at least once a week in training. And I think you said over 60 meters. Was there a distance that needed to be hit? Uh, over 90% obviously intensity. <clears throat> and then what was the duration? Yeah, that so uh, the speed is the important part for this. It's not intensity. So you can do a 20 meter sprint and set a PB, and I don't necessarily think you've done enough to condition your hamstrings because the velocity of your running gait um, is very important for how muscles are activated and the sequencing of the coordinative pattern. Um, so velocity is the important element, which is why I like longer upright sprints for hamstring conditioning. Short sprints, important and specific to sport, Longer sprints, important and specific to conditioning the hamstring. So I like 60s because I'm yet to work with an athlete who's still accelerating at 60. Um, they're going to get an opportunity to hit and get relaxed and maintain top speed. 
Um, it's not the only distance that you can do though. We do a lot of uh, an exercise that we will call like a 20, 40, 20 pyramid. So you've got a nice, steady, easy build over 20 meters. So you're not um, using up all your energy resources in the acceleration phase because we're trying to target top speed. So a nice, steady, easy build over 20 meters. Then 40 meters in the middle where I want you to hold top speed um, as best you can, hold good technique, good shape. So we might be actually working on a technical element of your running gait. And then I want you to take your time to bring yourself down to a stop over 20 meters at the end. So 20, 40, and 20. Uh, and we might just do that as, as a conditioning drill. That could be uh, three reps with a walk back recovery uh, and then have a rest and then go again. So this is not speed development, it's hamstring conditioning. And it's a different sort of training protocol. Uh, and that's where uh, insufficient rest and recovery can be okay. Uh, if, if we're trying to get a short, quick dose of hamstring stimulus, most athletes will be able to handle a few reps of that on uh, insufficient recovery and still be able to get over 90% of top speed. Um, but we're not going to be able to spend 40 minutes doing rep after rep and get a huge developmental dose with that type of drill. So is there anything specific with cricketers where they can be standing for such long periods of time for up to five days and then all of a sudden they've just got to sprint at 100%? Is there anything unique that you do to meet the needs of those unique requirements? Yeah, so we do, uh, we do house visits where we meet our athletes in the evening and we knock on the door and we get them to sprint down the street as fast <laughs> as they can. Um, no, that's a joke. So, um, one of the constraints is that it's difficult to replicate that. We, we don't have training sessions that go for seven hours. Um, so you kind of have to hit and hope a little bit. We, we try and cover as many bases as we can and we use these interventions like we've spoken about. Um, we, we just try and keep it simple and, and, and tick as many boxes as we can basically. Um, so I, I know some programs play around with, and not necessarily in cricket, but other sports play around with where they do their sprint training, for example. I know Leicester City, when they won the Premier League, quite controversially were doing their speed training at the end of training, um, which I kind of was irked by when I heard it initially. Um, I think you're pretty brave to do something like that, to go and do all your training and fatigue your athletes and then get them to sprint at the end. I'm yet to be convinced that that's the way to do it, but they won the Prem and uh, they were huge outsiders. So maybe that's the secret sauce that we all need to start doing. Um, do you know what but, their injury rate was? They might've won the premiership, but did they have any, uh, much of a team left? Was there a, uh, I can't told? quote it, but what I do know is that the teams with the least injuries tend to uh, go the furthest in, in all different team sports. And I know there is research on this. Um, teams with lower injury rates and higher player availability at the back end of the year, especially in sports where there are final series naturally are going to go further. Um, and my understanding is that they had a pretty good season with injuries. They didn't, they didn't have many people breaking down. So um, yeah, can be done that way. Uh, I haven't done it that way yet. Maybe I will one day. Um, but yeah, like I said, we, we just try and keep it simple, try and do some basic things and do them well. Um, and yeah, we, we, we don't try to replicate game demands to that level. Um, but what we do know is that if our athletes are sprinting regularly once a week, hitting top speed, we're, we're pretty confident they're going to be well prepared to, to play the game. And we don't have um, many hamstring injuries at all. So we're, we're confident that it's working. 
So we've hit the speed, we've hit the um, the strength stuff, and in terms of strength stuff, we've talked quite a bit about eccentric, but not so much about isometric. What can you share about isometric and what you like about it, and how do you go about incorporating it? Um, yeah, so I think like there's a renaissance of isometric training going on at the moment. Um, I know Alex Natera is a huge proponent of isometrics in specific uh, positions for for sprinting. Um, in cricket, Stefan Jones has um, sort of innovated a lot of these isometric sport-specific positions uh, in, in his training in terms of trying to strengthen what they call attractors um, or sort of key nodes of whatever the sporting action is that you're doing. Um, isometrics play a role in, um, in, re- in rehabilitation. They play a role in performance. I think there's a time and place to use them in many different ways. Practically, I use isometrics a lot um, to target specific elements of specific muscles that I think are at risk of injury. Um, So we can use isometrics to change muscle tone, um, to reduce stiffness as well. Uh, Isometrics are quite good at reducing stiffness levels and and manipulating muscle gearing. So if, if athletes like we talk about stiffness being really important for performance, but the flip side of that stiffness is that it means that a lot of forces are being redirected through hard tissues instead of through soft tissue. So um, have I got that right? Yeah, I have. I think I have. <laughs> so high levels of stiffness, you, you're more likely to get overuse injury to hard tissues when you've got high levels of stiffness. Uh, I believe I, yeah, I think Steve Adams at NSWIS talked to me a lot about that. He did some research on that with his athletes. Um, so we might have an athlete who's got a a lot of stimulus with short, sharp plyometric actions. And we actually want to change the gearing of their muscles to reduce some of that stiffness and, um, some isometric or yielding isometrics are quite useful in that. So is traditional strength training as well. Um, we use isometrics to target injury injury sites like um, hip ISO holds Alex and Alex Natera exercise. I use them a lot to target the hamstring, um, we use overcoming isometrics to target uh, weak points in sporting actions or running actions. So again, some stuff I've taken from Alex's work is the uh, the ankle isometric push. So you, you flip the J hooks upside down in the squat rack, put the bar on your back, push really hard with a straight leg, uh, driving up through the ankle as hard as you can, really challenging the um, ability of the calf to produce large rapid forces. Um, like I said, I've played around with sports-specific actions, some of Stefan Jones's work, getting athletes to get into that front foot contact position, uh, especially if we're trying to coach or teach a braced front leg. Uh, it can be a nice way for an athlete to start to familiarize themselves with that position uh, and start to actually figure out, oh, this is what it feels like uh, to be in, in a position that we want to then transfer into their sporting action. Um, so we, we can complex an exercise like a, a front foot contact isometric hold with something more dynamic, like a medicine ball overhead throw, where they're trying to replicate that position. We might use that in a strength program uh, to start to introduce and drip feed a a different technique to a young athlete who's still going through that developmental phase. um, And then we'll integrate with their skills coach and and say, we've been working on this. Um, Do you want to try and start integrating it into the skill? And then they might start practicing incorporating that in their bowling. So I think isometrics have a really... um, 
a really powerful um, place to play in motor learning and skill acquisition as well. Um, but yeah, there's so many different applications for it. But the flip side of that is it's not all I do in my programming. And in fact, it probably makes up a small proportion of what we do programming wise. Um, the vast majority of what we do is traditional basic strength training as well. We have talked about so much. There's still so much stuff that I would love to be able to get to, but I'm wary of your time. And maybe we can come back and do another episode. One of the things I wanted to talk about was periodization and workloads and even MAS, um, maximum aerobic speed running. Um, but there's, I would imagine, just as much time that we spent on this speed and strength stuff that we could sort of talk on the- It's all the uh, fun stuff anyway, mate, so. Stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, but what we might do is we might get into this 10 and 10 to start wrapping it up. Okay. So are you, are you ready for this? Born ready. <laughs> oh, all right. That's good to hear. Of course you are. Question one. So 10 and 10, as I sort of alluded to very quickly before we uh, started recording is quick answer. I don't mind if you dig away with the 10 seconds, but the idea is it's like the first thing that comes to mind and it might be. I'll do my best. <laughs> whatever. Okay. So importance of phases. Uh, from a planning perspective? I can't remember actually what it was that you were talking about when I wrote that, but let's go with that. Uh, um, yeah, I think really important that you have clear themes and ideas in terms of how you're planning your training. Um, have phases where you are targeting specific elements and make sure that those phases sort of snowball off each other. Question two, and I did deliberately leave this one very open, and it's one word, adolescence. Uh, <laughs> yeah, to give you some help here, you were, help, you were talking at the time about your life, your experiences. Okay. And how, so, but the first thing that comes to mind, maybe the importance of certain things in adolescence. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a pivotal, a pivotal uh, time. And uh, I was really lucky to have some really good close friends who that actually that, that they went through some interesting adversities. And I took a lot of strengths from seeing how they dealt with that sort of stuff. Uh, and that is actually, you know, a really pivotal forming part of the person I am today. So uh, that's probably kind of the, the thing I had in the back of the mind the whole time I was talking to you about that, that phase. <laughs> <laughs> uh, question three, sprint training. Oh, everyone should do it. The, the moment you stop sprinting is the moment you stop being athletic. Question four, priming. Give it a go. Uh, yeah, short, short, sharp, high intensity, low volume. Give it a go. Five, five acceleration versus deceleration. Um, well, you, you can't do acceleration without deceleration and you can't do deceleration without acceleration. So they're, they're two sides of the same coin for mine. Um, make sure that you put as much attention on both sides of the coin though. Great. Number six, challenges on the body in cricket. Um, lower backs for fast bowlers. Uh, whoever can crack that code is going to make a fortune. Um, yeah, it's... It, it beats up bodies. It's hard work. <laughs> Number seven, your favourite exercise? If you could only do one for the rest of your life. I reckon every four or five months it would change. I, I love <laughs> sprinting and I, I love power cleans and I love power snatches and I used to love 
heavy back squats when my back didn't blow out every three or four months. <laughs> Sprinting at the moment, that's, that's definitely, definitely something I've been doing a lot of lately. Uh, question eight, eccentric exercises. Um, yeah, I think they're underutilized. And I think a lot of uh, athletes and, uh, and coaches could benefit from doing more. Number nine, now I know you're probably going to have a lot of these and you're going to want to list them all so that you don't offend anybody, but mentors or people you look up to in strength and conditioning? Oh, yeah, no, there's too many to name. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Some really pivotal coaches that I've worked with. Uh, Graham Morris gave me my my first break. He was uh, at the Newtown Jets at the time and he's a great mind in strength and conditioning. Nathan Parnham, uh, he brought me on at Newington College. Um, still a great friend. He's got a book coming out soon called The Sporting Parent. Everyone go and buy that, especially if you're a parent and you like sports. Uh, get him on as a guest, actually. <laughs> um, uh, I'm writing it down right now. Yeah, Sport, Nathan Parnham. Sporting, sporting Parent. Yep. Uh, oh, Sam yeah. Kennedy at the Sydney Roosters. He brought me on at the Roosters. Um, and I learned a lot about um, like the, the practical element of um, – just being able to roll out programming that works um, and not getting caught up in the minutia of all sorts of other different things that are going on. Um, and then the, the current staff I work with at Cricket New South Wales, Tom Redden, who's my, my boss, uh, Ross Herridge, who's our strength and conditioning or physical performance coordinator, uh, Sean Hardy, who's another colleague of mine there. Um, and I mean, outside of that, there, there are so many people that I follow. I think, I'm probably following 500 different SNCs on different forms of social media. And I, I think you can learn something from everyone. So um, even, even there's a few people on there who most of the time I cringe at their posts. So I'm still open-minded. I'm, I'm, I'm always <laughs> looking for a little piece of gold I can add to my programming. That's good though. I think you do need to follow those people that make you cringe a little bit. I think it's good for you. Oh, it's, I, I think, we, we live in a culture now today where so many people are quick to shy away from things they don't like, um, sort of cancel culture and the ability to block things that, um, that don't sit well with you. I think it means that people, they, they avoid difficult things and difficult ideas and, and things that don't necessarily align with their worldview. Um, but I think you need to expose yourself to that stuff and go looking for it as much as you can because um, makes you a, a more holistic, well-rounded person, I think. Yeah. So question 10 is going to sound like it's a little bit from left field because it's not really related to what you have spoken about. But it is a question that I ask every single guest and it's more because I'm just interested in this. So, and what, again, whatever comes to mind first, if you could go back in time or forward in time, which would you go to and why? I reckon you go back in time. And I just think maybe it wouldn't work as well as I thought it would. I just think like with, with what we know today, oh, you'd probably just get yourself killed for being a witch, wouldn't you? <laughs> oh, this is a tricky one. I, I think so, I'd go back wait, in time. If you're going back in time, how far back are you going? Oh, I don't know. I just, yeah, I suppose you wouldn't get killed for being a witch if you went back to like the 50s. Uh, I don't know. Like to be honest though, for everything that, that people complain about, I don't think there's ever been a better time to be alive. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if I want to go anywhere just yet. 
it's really it's a good insight into people's minds asking that question because in my head when i ask that question i'm coming back I, i'm i'm teleporting through time whether it's forward or back and i'm coming back to now but some people interpret it that they're going back to live or they don't want to know what the world's like you know in the future or they don't want to go back you know no regrets or whatever so they're considering that within their life and some people are going like you know thousands of years back it's it's re- i really like now you've got question. me thinking i'm trying to think like oh do I want to see what the world looks like in a thousand years from now? What, what will it look like? What do you reckon? I think it would be, uh, it'd be fascinating to see like yeah. would people who lived a thousand years ago, God, they'd be scratching their heads if they showed up today, wouldn't they? So yeah, I think, Hmm. I, yeah. You've baffled me. I'm going to sit on the fence. I sit on the fence on a lot of stuff. Cause I think yeah. there's, there's, um, there's no right or wrong answer to, to many questions. So I'm, I'm firmly got splinters in my backside on this one. <laughs> Imagine that a thousand years ago, just like the idea of strapping yourself into some metal tube and flying across, you know, yeah. from one side of the planet <laughs> and outside of the planet and onto a, you know, out into space. It's crazy. Like imagine, just think like that a thousand years ago. And, yeah, what's and the rate at, and the rate at which technology is advancing um, now, like that's only going to grow exponentially in the future. So yeah, who knows what a thousand years from now holds. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nathan, thank you so much. I want to acknowledge you for all the work that you do in helping athletes um, all around the world through the stuff you share on social media, as well as what you do in person um, there in Sydney, beautiful backdrops all the time in those Instagram stories. Um, and I just want to thank you for being a guest on the Mind Your Body show. No, I really appreciate the invitation to come on. It's been a pleasure. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm helpful and useful in some way. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Are you frustrated that no matter how much you try, no matter how good you plan to eat, no matter how much you intend to exercise, you just can't seem to stay on track with your health and fitness goals? Do you feel like your best of intentions to have more energy and feel better about yourself results in having even less energy and feeling down? What if there was something you were missing? What if eating healthy was actually enjoyable? What if you looked forward to exercise? What if moving more could actually be really easy? I've put together a free ebook just for you, detailing the strategies for having more energy and feeling better about yourself. And I want to give it to you absolutely free. To get instant access absolutely free, simply visit jacobandre.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-A-N-D-R-E-A-E.com.